All right, how about you open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, that's what we're going to do, Ephesians chapter 6, so open up, Ephesians 6, if you guys have been with us for any length of time, uh, you know that we've been going through the book of Ephesians on Sunday mornings, uh, we've been doing this since around January, and uh, we're kind of coming close to the end, and uh, what we've been looking at in particular is uh, what we would call spiritual warfare, and that begins kind of in the latter part or the middle part of uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to jump into that in just a moment. So if you guys open up there, if you guys don't have Bibles and you're looking for a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have some people that would be happy to get you guys a Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to go ahead and keep this. It's our gift to you. We want you guys to have a Bible. So um, open up Ephesians 6, verse 10. I want to pray, and then uh, we'll begin to take a look at what Paul has to say to us about the subject of spiritual <laughs> warfare. So God, we ask you right now that you would speak to us. God, we pray for uh, attentiveness. We pray, God, that you would help us to hear what it means for us to trust you and honor you. And at the same time, uh, following you, Jesus, being aware of the various ways in which our faith is under attack, in which our lives are always trying to be thrown off the trail from following you. God, I pray that you would help us understand what that looks like and to be aware of the various ways in which that takes place. And so we ask God right now that you would just uh, speak your word to us and give our hearts greater confidence and trust in who you are and transform us, we pray. And we commit this morning in your hands and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump in, I want to give a little bit of a background. And uh, the idea that what Paul's been doing in Ephesians uh, really throughout the entire book, he's been preaching a consistent message that Paul preached throughout his life. Uh, In short, it can be summarized like this. Paul's message that he preached was this message of the life, death, uh, resurrection, and ultimately the ascension of Jesus as king. So in other words, Paul proclaimed that Jesus was not just simply a miracle worker. Jesus was just not a teacher, but that Jesus himself, when he says that he's the Messiah, that word Messiah literally means king, and that's how Paul would have understood it. And again, for us as a culture, a lot of ways we think of kings as being um, imperialistic, you know, kind of like England going out and imperializing all sorts of parts of the world and taking advantage and suppressing other people and oppressing others. And, um, but the idea of a king in Paul's mind and every Jew's mind would have been that a king comes upon the scene and the king actually brings order to where there was formerly disorder, that a king actually reorients a culture or society where it was once disoriented. And this is how Paul would have understood Jesus. Jesus comes and really brings life, brings flourishing, brings eternal life. And so what Paul would have understood as he preached this message about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus the King and the Messiah, he would extend that to everybody that he shared this message to. And he would say, if you follow, if you trust Jesus, then you share in the life of Jesus. You will share in that life, the power, the the, the reordering of Jesus. In other words, the way Jesus would have put it is eternal life begins right now to those who trust in and follow Jesus. In other words, if Jesus is king, what he promises, what he claims to do in your life is to reorient your life so that it flourishes. Not in a sense of prosperity where everything is going to go well in your life, you're going to make a lot of money, you're going to lose weight, you're going to get pretty. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus will change you. He will give you life to where there was once nothing but death. This is what Jesus 
promises, both now in this life, but also in the life to come, meaning we all die. We will always, every human being on planet Earth will at one point die, and Jesus promises those who die, that's not your end, because death was not the end for Jesus. In other words, the very fate that Jesus uh, entered into, meaning he died, but that wasn't the end of his story because the story went on to his resurrection. Those who die in Jesus will also share in the life of Jesus, meaning death is not the end. There is life after death. That's the great hope of followers of this Jesus. But what Paul would go on to say throughout the book of Ephesians is that even though God has chosen to do something in this broken life that we have in planet Earth or on planet Earth, to undo the brokenness, undo the destruction. There are dark, evil forces that are at work, nonetheless, trying to undo everything that's good within this world. So, in other words, what the Christian uh, faith actually affirms is it basically attempts to address the problem of evil within this world. In other words, uh, oftentimes people are kind of wondering, you know, why is there evil in the world? And a lot of people within this world that maybe aren't Christians, for example, are trying to wrestle with the fact that there's wickedness, there's evil. And one of the realities is that we, as human beings, um, it's hard for us sometimes to really fully grasp evil if we're just simply watching it through our television screens or from our computers. Uh, but when evil comes into our lives, something really profoundly wicked happens within our lives then we are forced to deal with it, whether it's wickedness in terms of something that comes in the form of cancer or takes your physical life or something that comes in the form of um, a violation against you uh, violently or sexually or emotionally. Uh, at some point, we look at those various types of things and we call it for what it really is. We call it evil. But what the Christian uh, faith attempts to do is it attempts to personify that evil actually comes into this world through what Paul is going to describe as the devil. This is how the Jews would have understood it. This is how Paul would have described it. But the way this fits within the storyline is that God has come into this world through Jesus to undo the brokenness that's systemic in this world by way of sin. And yet what the devil is still doing, even though he's an ultimately defeated foe, he still seeks to undo all the good things that God has intended to do. He still seeks to sabotage or to break apart or to bring ruin upon people's lives. The good news is, is if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, then that life that comes from Jesus is alive in you, through you, so you have the power, just like Jesus had the power, to say no to the attacks of the devil. Just like when Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus was tempted by the devil. Jesus, each time, overcame the attacks or the methods or the tactics of the devil. In the same way, if you're a follower of Jesus, that the same power that helped and enabled Jesus to overcome those attacks is also alive and and enabling you to do the same. If you're somebody this morning that is not a follower of Jesus, then in reality, by definition, you don't have the power that he seeks to give to you. But the question could be asked, and how do you get that? And the answer is, is you turn to Jesus as king. If Jesus is a king kings reorder lives, then at some point you have to come to grips with the fact that what other kings or kingdoms or queens, if you're a female, uh, in your life are trying to be set up as rival thrones to King Jesus. See, in other words, what we're really trying to say is what the gospel message is, is it's the message that Jesus is king and he seeks to bring his kingdom life into your life, which means 
if his kingdom comes, your kingdom must go. But that's actually really good news. Because your kingdom is not as vast and strong and as powerful as you think it is. Does that make sense? Most of us as human beings, we tend to think, well, I'm really strong, I'm really powerful. But the older we get, especially if, we're, if you're young, maybe say in your late teens, 20s, you tend to think that you are invincible. The older you get, the more aware you are of the fact that you are not as strong as you think you are. You are not in control as you think you are. You don't have as much power over things within this world as you thought you once had. And so therefore, it's really good news to know that God does. And so that's what Jesus offers. So with that, Paul wants us to not be aware, uh, Paul wants us to not be unaware, I should say, of the various forms of attack that the devil so with that, I want to jump right now into the story of the book of Ephesians, picking up at chapter 6 at verse 10. So if you guys uh, see up on the screen or open up your Bibles, I'm going to read verse 10, and then we're going to go down to about verse 13, and then we'll jump in, take a look at this. So Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the power of his strength, and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. We'll come back to this in a moment, but the idea of scheme is actually, we get the English word from there, is the word method. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of the various methods that the devil employs to try to undo uh, what God wants to do in your life. And so then he goes on to say in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Uh, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. In other words, what Paul is really summarizing is that in this world, there is evil. There's this reality of evil. It's not just something we have to dismiss or ignore, or we have to overemphasize and focus on constantly, but the fact of the matter is, is that it's there. It's resident. There is a literal resident evil in this world which we live in. And yet what Paul is saying is that this evil seeks to sabotage and undo every good thing that God seeks to do. And so what Paul's prayer, what Paul's uh, instruction is to the believers there in Ephesus, is that, look, God's done an amazing work in your life. Are you aware of the various strategies and methods that the devil is at work employing in your life right now, trying to undo, untie, and bring ruin into your life? Are you aware of those things? And this is really what Paul is trying to drive at. This is what I want to drive at as well. And the question that I would kind of poise to you is, do you know what they are? Are you aware of them? So that when you look at the various scenarios in your life and you find yourself entering into places of brokenness, are you aware of the fact that maybe, maybe to some degree, there are various elements of demonic, dark forces that are at work actually seeking to undermine everything good that God is wanting to do in your life? And if so, if you identify those things, what are you doing? to undo those things? What do you do when you find yourself in these places of spiritual attack? And what we said a couple weeks ago is we try to distinguish between what we would describe as common demonic attack from blatant demonic attack. In other words, most of us would be able to quickly identify blatant demonic attack, all right? Uh, you can look at somebody, for example, and maybe you saw the headlines a couple days ago in New York City, a guy with a hatchet, runs up behind a couple cops and completely uh, tries to attack him and almost killing one of the cops and uh, 
Uh, he still is in critical condition. And most people that read that or saw that were immediately, the words out of their mouth were, how wicked. That's blatant. That's blatant evil. That's blatant wickedness right there on the streets of New York City. And it's easy for us sometimes to look at people and sometimes that are kind of crazy, they got crazy eyes or if they levitate or something weird demonic happens. You know, we're like, oh, that's demonic because it's blatant demonic. But most of us are not as quick and as likely to identify other forms of demonic that are more common. So, for example, if you're somebody that harbors bitterness in your heart and you are filled with rage and anger towards somebody, do you know that that's demonic? Some of us might be like, well, it's not that big a deal. Nobody else really knows about it. But the reality is is that emotion is gnawing at you, destroying you, crushing you, ruining you. Uh, bringing destruction into your life. And at some point, maybe, if unguarded, could even bring destruction into the life of that person that you hate. That's exactly what Jesus says. If you even hate somebody, that's actually the predecessor to murder. So the point of the matter is, is it's very easy for us, I think, to identify certain blatant forms of spiritual attack, but very less likely for us to identify common forms of demonic attack. So what I want to do now is I'm going to begin to take a look at some of the various forms of common demonic. And what we said a couple of weeks ago is that Paul is going to immediately jump in to begin to prescribe what we would describe as the armor of God. So when Paul begins to unpack for us or describe for us the various uh, elements of the armor of God, what I think Paul is actually doing is he's also, in the description of the various forms of the armor of God, he's also kind of in a negative way implying that each one of these uh, explicit forms of um, armor are to protect us or safeguard us against implicitly from the other forms of demonic attack. So let me give you an example. I kind of made a little chart, so hopefully this might make a little sense for you. So for example, the armor of God, Paul talks about the belt of truth. Why does Paul tell us to put on the belt of truth? Well, because Paul realizes that one of the number one forms of common demonic attack upon our lives are lies meaning we believe lies, all of us, every single one of us, at some point in our life, we find ourselves struggling with lies. We believe certain lies. Lies actually lead to languishing in every type of relationship. Now, we didn't point this out within just a social level uh, within relationships. So let's say that you have a relationship with somebody, let's say they're your best friends. And if something begins to come up in that relationship where now you begin to become suspicious of their devotion to you, and maybe you begin to question their faithfulness or whatever the case is. Maybe they did something or maybe you think they stole something and maybe they never really actually did steal something, but in your mind you think they stole something. That very fact that you think that is actually belief in a lie. And that will bring a wedge, division, brokenness in that relationship because it's a lie that has done that. So what Paul is saying is that the way you undo lies is not by necessarily going around exposing every lie, but by shining on the truth, by, by robing yourself, clothing yourself in truth, becoming familiar with what the truth is. Now, in the context of the Bible, truth is not just simply a principle. Truth is actually a person. Truth is actually found in the person of Jesus. So really what the idea that the Bible conveys is that if we find ourselves struggling in lies or believing things about ourselves or believing things about others that lead to wedges or brokenness or gaps or destruction, then what we need to do is we need to go back to Jesus, let Jesus bring healing to our hearts, and then bring healing to those relationships. That's what Jesus does. 
So, for example, righteousness, we saw this last week, is one of the uh, elements of the armor of God. But righteousness is to cover up our unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is oftentimes provoked by the devil to get us to act. I'm not going to pack this. You guys can listen to the message if you would like from last week as well. It's on our website. But what I want to look at here today are just the last three, which is he's going to talk about peace, the gospel of peace. He's going to talk about the shield of faith. He's going to talk about salvation. And each one of these basically have a corollary. So I think peace, the opposite of peace, would be disintegration. I'll, un, I'll describe and unpack that in just a moment here, why I chose the word disintegration for the word peace. And the opposite of faith would be disbelief. It's not just simply doubt, and I'll unpack that in just a moment. But the fact of the matter is, is disbelief, choosing to uh, make a cognitive decision to not trust God, is actually a form of spiritual demonic attack to keep you locked in a life of languishing and brokenness. And then finally, we'll take a look at salvation, the opposite of which is destruction. So we'll take a look at disintegration, distrust, and destruction. Let's first of all start with disintegration. So to ask the question again, why I choose the word disintegration for the opposite of the word peace. So let's read a couple of verses in different translations in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. It says this in the ESV. He says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the of readiness given by the gospel of peace. So the ESV uses the phrase the gospel of peace. Um, another translation uh, translates it this way. For shoes on your feet, ready for battle, take the good news of peace. In other words, the idea is that there are shoes, the way that a soldier would dress, and the shoes would cause them to be ready uh, to move forward, to be able to move uh, rather than laying on their back. they got shoes, so they're ready to advance or do whatever they need to do. But in this case, what Paul says, the emphasis, the important part, is the gospel or the good news of peace. That the good news really is, the gospel is good news in that it brings peace. Now this is important because the word peace that Paul uses here would have been clearly understood within the context of Paul's Jewishness. Now, if you didn't know, Paul was, by the way, Jewish, which meant Paul grew up in a context where he understood certain words to have certain rich meaning. So, for example, we can use the word peace, and if I were to you know, tell you right now, let's think of something in your mind that is peaceful. Some of us, we'd all have different versions of what peaceful looks like. Some of us, like for me, I'll tell you right now, peaceful to me looks like laying on a beach, 85-degree uh, weather, 80-degree water, and really good waves, and, um, and just a hammock, and just me and my family. Like, that's, that's peaceful for me, just being able to relax, find rest. That's peace or peaceful. But the reality is, is that is not really in the fullness of what is meant in the really rich word for peace. Uh, the Hebrew word for peace is the uh, word shalom. So the next slide, um, the way to kind of understand the word shalom from a Hebrew perspective would be something along these lines. Uh, completeness or prosperity, and oftentimes the idea of being able to have your life uh, made whole, which would be prosperous, not just simply in the way of financial. Financial could also mean prosperous in terms of having a complete family. Um, all of these ways uh, can be summarized within that word prosperity. Uh, welfare, or in other words, the state of being well, where your soul, kind of like that uh, ancient hymn, or that, it's not so ancient, but uh, a couple of hundred years ago, it is well with my soul. It's basically a way of saying, hey, my heart has shalom, has peace. Um, uh, it says it can be used idiomatically to mean both hello and goodbye. So if you've been around Jews, you know, oftentimes you can hear them say shalom when they meet somebody when they're going to go away. 
Uh, they say shalom. It's really the state of being whole. The, another word is actually derived from the word shalom or points to another word uh, in the Hebrew is the word shalem. The word shalem basically means completeness or a wholeness. So, for example, if I had a deck of cards, which first service people told me there's, what, 52 cards in a whole deck? Is that right? I don't play cards too much. So, but 52 cards in a complete deck. So let's say, for example, if there was only 48 cards in that deck, right? A couple jokers are out and so on. So, so it's, only, it's not a complete deck. Um, that deck is not shalem. It's not shalem. You've got to have a complete deck of cards in order for it to be shalem. And the idea of shalem being wholeness, in other words, everything is in there. Um, uh, maybe jokers, is that not the right uh, card to choose, I guess? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe let's see queens or whatever. Um, so the point of the matter is, back on track, um, the, it's not complete. It's not whole. And what God wants to do is make something whole. And so the idea of he, the Hebrew word uh, peace or shalom means to take people, society, groups of people, families that are disoriented, disorganized, in disarray, missing some elements here, uh, lost some elements here, bring them together in wholeness. That's the Hebrew word for shalom. Um, The prophets in the Old Testament, for example, Isaiah was one of them that spoke often about this, that they predicted a day that one day when God will actually bring shalom to the lands of Israel. Question, is Israel in shalom now? Not at all. I mean, is, is anywhere in the Middle East, is anywhere in America in shalom? The answer is no. Uh, our life knows nothing really of shalom. I mean, we have hints every once in a while here and there, like, like little, little, little glimpses of peace where in a moment sometimes things will come together and we're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like those are little glimpses of shalom. And those moments we wish we can just pause and make them become eternity. Well, good news one day Jesus will do that. And it won't be on pause. It will be active. It will be live. It will be happening and will be part of that if you follow the king of Shalom. So the point of the matter is, is that if we kind of move on to the next slide, as we begin to look at this, there's basically two ways of identifying kind of disintegration. So I use the word disintegration because if uh, Shalom basically means an integration. Everything is coming together. Everything is working together. Uh, there's no... Uh, disintegration. Things are working, functioning, flowing together. We even have an English word in which we use for this. Um, let's say, for example, if somebody is, uh, they, they act the same way in private the way that, that they do in public, um, meaning they are honest in public, they are honest in private, they are, uh, they are kind in public, just as they are kind behind closed doors, we would call that person a person who is full of integrity. Because what we're basically saying is their life is not disintegrated. They're not one person over here and then a total, you know, nice person over here, but a total jerk over here. Everything about that person is is integrated. They're nice over here. They're nice over here. They're honest over here. They're honest over here. They're kind over here. They're kind over here. They are are one integrated whole. We would call those people, people filled with integrity. It's the idea of the word uh, integrated. And so right now, we live in a world that is not in harmony with heaven. If God rules from heaven, God is good, God's rule and reign is good, everything that God does is good, we look at this world and we realize that things are not always good, things are not always broken, we can either say because God doesn't rule this world or because there's still evil 
that resides within this world. And that's the biblical narrative, is that there's still evil that resides within this world. And it's one of the reasons why this world, uh, heaven, and this world oftentimes are clashing with each other, coming in contradiction with one another, is because there is disharmony, disintegration. In other words, there is no shalom upon this planet. And what the gospel message is, is that it's the gospel of peace. So there's at least two different ways in which we see uh, disintegration happening. On a societal level, we can see it happening uh, within these particular ways, within our culture. And not just with, with regard to American culture, uh, but the culture at large, meaning the world in which we live in. And so some of the words that you know, I've kind of used to put up here to describe various ways of describing the world around us uh, immediately within America, but also beyond, is war, violence, revenge, retribution, rage, hatred, hostility. These are the words in which we live our lives according to the narrative of those words. Those words bring about actions in our life that actually disintegrate us from the whole. It brings destruction. It's why each one of these words are used to describe the world in which we live in at large. And it brings brokenness. One of the reasons why we have, you know, peace officers, you can call them peace officers, their end game, their end job is not to just simply take out bad guys. It's really to restore shalom. To restore at least some semblance of peace in order. That's kind of the idea that's used there. So, for example, what Paul is absolutely blown away by within the first part of the book of Ephesians is that God, through Jesus, was actually at work bringing together disoriented, disintegrated groups of people into one integrated whole. This one integrated whole by which God was doing something brand new is called the church. Now, to understand a little bit of the context, you've got to understand a little bit about Paul the Apostle and his background. Now, Paul... Uh, most of you know, as I already mentioned, is a Jew, but he was not just any Jew. Paul was probably described and probably would have described himself or defined himself as being sort of an elite Jew, part of an elite group of Judaism called a Pharisee. And these are guys that basically really uh, would probably be best identified within our modern culture as being an ultra right-wing, fundamentalist, Fox News-watching type of Jew. That's, that's who Paul would have been. I mean, Paul would have lived his life by that, and he would have looked at anybody else that was not in that exact same sphere of life or elitism as himself, and he would be critical of them and judge them. Paul is saying, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And what Paul recognized that when God saved him, when God transformed his heart, when the gospel changed him, um, what happened was Paul began to catch a vision that God actually is wanting to bring together all sorts of people, even those whom Paul would have normally never wanted to spend any time with. And primarily, in Paul's mind, that would have no doubt not only been uh, other you know, broken-down Jews living in first-century Judaism, meaning that didn't live according to Phariseeism, but also those that were non-Jews. The biblical word for that would be Gentiles. And what Paul was recognizing is that in the early church, that what God was doing is bringing together not only Jews under one roof, but also Gentiles were coming together. They were coming together in this unified family in which Jesus was king over both. And there was no hierarchy. There was no sense of like, we're better than you guys because you know, it, you know, we know the Bible uh, better than you guys. There was none of that. I mean, there was all of that, I should say. Um, but the point of the matter was, was there was a framework by which that was no longer acceptable. Because reality is we live in a world 
that always likes to slice and dice things up based upon hierarchy, based upon you know, social economic status. So in other words, if you are the haves, and you, you, know, you have the money, you have the ability, you have the good looks, you have the power, there's always a distinguishing factor between you and those that don't look pretty, that don't have the power, that don't have the ability, and there's always these distinguishing of classes. And what Paul is saying is that God is doing something new in this world whereby we are not distinguished by our class, There's no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female. There is one family. This is God's beginning to launch this thing called peace. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He says this, Jesus is our shalom, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now again, Paul is writing to Gentiles who live in a city called Ephesus, These were non-Jews that began to follow Jesus as the king, the crucified and resurrected king. And these Gentiles, Paul said, you're part of my family. This elitist Jew, part of the Pharisee group, Paul would look at these Gentile people and say, no, 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 you are not second-class citizens in this family. You are first-class citizens just like all of us. We are one family because of what Jesus has done for us, in us, through us. And therefore, he's, uh, he's dropped down that dividing wall. In fact, he uses the word hostility. That prior to Jesus, there is nothing but hostility that divided us. So let me ask you, is there hostility you have in your heart towards others? Hostility towards the fact that, let's say, maybe you don't have a lot of money, and you look at those that have a lot of money, you're, you're ticked. Or you have a lot of money, you look at those who don't have a lot of money, you look at them as being lazy. And as people that just simply want handouts. Or if you have a particular race, and you look at those that are not of a particular race that you belong to, and you look down upon them because of their skin color. The fact of the matter is, is what the gospel announces is that God has begun a brand new work, and in Jesus, he's bringing together a brand new community whereby it's defined by shalom. And he's tearing down all of these other forms and ideas and ideologies that bring disintegration. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul actually says that even within this community of the new creation, of new church, he also realizes there are still those that will somehow sometimes bring division and distinction. And in this case, they bring it based upon the various things that they teach and the various things that they say. So it's one of the reasons why in Romans 16 he says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have heard me taught, avoid them. For such persons don't serve the Lord Jesus, uh, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So Paul says, be aware of these guys, because there are people that are even within this community, this new community, whereby Jesus is reshaping after his own self, and they will bring division. Paul says, be aware of those people. So the point of the matter is, we see disintegration not only on a societal level, but we also see disintegration within a personal level. So next slide is we also see it on a very personal level. And one of the personal ways in which we find disintegration within our lives is in the form of anxiety and fear, uh, sort of on an emotional and uh, mental type of level, but then also disease on a level of physical. So think of the word disease. The word disease actually comes from two words. The latter word is the word ease. So you think of the word ease meaning something like along the lines of rest where everything is calm, everything is normal. You don't really necessarily notice anything, but something that is not at ease is something that is diseased. 
that's not at ease. It's not at rest. There's not wholeness within your body. So, for example, you can have a body that everything else is going great in your body. You feel strong. You feel healthy. But you have a broken toe. All right? That may cause a lot of pain. And even though every part of your, the rest of your other body is full of life and you feel great, you can have something that's broken and cause a lot of pain. That is actually sort of a sense of where it's taking away ease, this ease, even though it's not technically defined as a disease like a broken toe. But you get the idea. So the point of the matter is, is the idea of disintegration on this particular level is that it takes us and tears us apart. And that's what fears and anxiety do. They destroy us. They disintegrate us. They break us down. And so what we see that Jesus basically says, for example, the idea of physical body, Jesus says in Mark chapter 5, verse 34, Jesus said to this lady, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Again, go in shalom. Jesus heals this lady. And so basically he announces what her healing amounts to. Her healing amounts to wholeness. You are made whole. You are made well. Go in wholeness. Go in peace. You are made well. He says, you've been healed of your disease. In other words, Jesus takes from this lady her disease, and sends her away whole. Here's an interesting thought to think about. Jesus, oftentimes, in his earthly ministry, would walk up to people that were either broken, had blindness, or their bodies were diseased, or they had some sort of a physical sickness, say, for example, like leprosy, which was kind of considered sort of the Ebola of the first century. Nobody wanted to hang out with people that were uh, uh, leprous. They viewed them as extremely unclean. Jesus walks up to these people, not with a suit on, but touches them, and they walk away healed. Shockingly, Jesus never walks away with leprosy. It's an amazing thing. The tendency is for us oftentimes is to look at people that are diseased, people that are broken, people that are fear-ridden, people that are ridden by guilt or anxieties. Our tendency is to be like, I've got to stay away from them. They've got negative vibes. I don't want to be around negative people because I'll get all negative. But with Jesus, we see the exact opposite. He takes their anxieties, takes their fears, takes their diseases upon himself, and in exchange, gives them shalom. So, quick question. How do we practically take our fears and anxieties and bring wholeness to them? What we see in short is we see that basically Jesus says to those that would follow him, he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. In other words, it's his way of basically saying in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, is those of you that are broken, those that are ruined, those that you find yourselves constantly filled with anxieties and worries and fears, and you find yourself buckling under the weight of those things, because in your mind you're constantly finding yourself going back to sort of the brickyards of Pharaoh and worried about all the mounting work that you are falling underneath the weight of. Jesus says, all those anxieties that are bringing disintegration, destruction in your life, come to me and I will take them. I will bear them. I will carry them for you. In an exchange, my yoke will be placed upon you and I will give you my peace. How do we do that practically? There's two main ways in which we oftentimes deal with this type of difficulty within our hearts and our lives. One way is to over-focus upon those things. So in other words, we got circumstances we're going through, so we over-focus on these things. We over-analyze them. Um, we over-scrutinize them, and we find ourselves going deeper into this hole of anxiety. Anybody do that? Raise your hand, a couple of you guys. Um, the other way is to 
totally ignore them, to run away from them, to try to get it out of our mind. Some people, this is one of the reasons why people turn to drugs or alcohol usage or abuse. It's, 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 it's an attempt to run as far away as you can from the disintegrating effects of fears and anxieties. The third way, and both of those, by the way, never really bring healing. Both of those actually lead to greater pain, hurt, hardship in your life and in the lives of other people that are within your life. The third way is to actually be able to see all of these anxiety-creating circumstances in your life and to put them in the context of a God that's bigger than all of them. In other words, what you really need is to not see less or to not focus so much on something that's really there. You need to actually see more. You need to get a bigger vision, a grander vision of all of these anxiety-producing circumstances in the context of the bigger God who carries you, who loves you, who wants to help you, who wants to reorient your life towards peace. This is what Paul is saying, is that this idea of disintegration is a tactic of the devil to crush you. The second thing is disbelief. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16 says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the firing darts or the fiery darts of the evil one. So in this particular idea, what I think Paul is basically describing is that one of the attacks of the devil, one of the attempts or one of the strategy of the devil is to get us to live in various forms of disbelief. Now I want to nuance disbelief from doubts. And the reason why I want to do this is because oftentimes there's a lot of Christians that find themselves wrestling with doubts, meaning you wonder, is God really going to pull through? Is this really true? Is this really going to happen? And there's a, uh, an American philosopher slash uh, Bible scholar by a guy by the name Paul Tillett. He basically said this. He says, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. And what he meant by that really is that if you have faith in God, And if you read his word, you study him, you do everything you can to understand who God is, there are going to be occasions where you're going to come in contact with passages about God that will basically confront you. And they may even contradict you. And when they confront you and contradict you, the question then is, what are you going to do with those things? Now, you're left with a struggle. And the struggle is what we would call working through those doubts. Am I going to trust God in this, or am I going to trust what culture has taught me about this? Am I going to take God's word on this, or am I going to completely um, uh, listen to the voice of my grandma or other voices of authority within my life? Am I going to listen and obey God, even though this may seem completely countercultural? That basically is a process of massaging the word of God into your life. That takes time. It takes hard work. It takes being done in community. It's one of the reasons why sometimes if you're a young uh, believer or even if you're an old believer and you're working through some of these things, uh, there are going to be occasions where you're going to struggle with believing some of those things. That doesn't mean that you're not a believer. It means that you are a believer that trusts in Jesus, that's trying to figure out how God's word synchronizes with all of these other things in your mind, in your life, as, as a person living in this culture. And you got to keep working through those things and letting God's word begin to win its day within your life because God's promise is to bring us life. That's what God intends. That's what God wants. The opposite of this would be disbelief. Disbelief basically says, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but I don't really give a rip because this is what I think really is right or wrong. Disbelief basically is hardening of one's heart 
that says, I don't really care about any other opinion except my own opinion and how I understand and what I can comprehend and what I can realize in any other decision or any other opinion that contradicts my opinion is foolishness. That's disbelief. That is a tactic of the devil to bring destruction into your life. Because let me put it this way. If God, the way the Bible describes, is a fountain of life, then that means that everything that comes from God also is a fountain of life. To say that whatever thing that comes from God that's life-giving, that's good, I don't want that, I refuse to accept that because that goes against my sensibilities, my cultural understanding, my own identity of who I think I am, it runs contrary to that. I, therefore, I will not accept it. It's actually not a step towards life, but a step towards death. That's an attack, a tactic, and a method of the devil to lead you to a path of brokenness. This is why Paul says we've got to put on, really, the shield of faith. So, if you can think of it this way, I think if you want a quick cultural analysis, I think the church, for example... Um, in a lot of ways, I feel like the modern-day church in the West is kind of undergoing kind of a, a how would I put it, a retraction, pulling away, uh, kind of walking away from the, the front lines of the battle. In a lot of ways, it's because it's walking away sort of in shame, being like, oh, my gosh, we've got to apologize to everybody because we kind of messed up. And the reason why I think that is is throughout, the, say, like the 80s and the early 90s, um, the church kind of came across very triumphal. In a sense, the church, uh, within at least the West, within America, kind of came across with this idea, like, we have all the answers, we know everything, we're right, all these things are going to happen just the way that we are, our charts have predicted, and yet it has not happened exactly the way the charts have predicted. And there is a sense where another generation, a lot of generation, with, with, especially within our church, that kind of repre- is represented within our church, has looked at sort of that triumphal, triumphalism, that mentality of, of having a very firm uh, conviction, in a sense, with uh, an overconfidence that I would say that's kind of birthed from that. And it's kind of created a culture within the Christian world that basically says, I'm not very confident about anything. I don't have firm convictions on anything. All I know is I just love Jesus. In a lot of ways, it's, it's a backing away from firm biblical truths. And what I would say is that one extreme, even though it may have led to the other extreme, both extremes don't lead to life. One leads to an arrogance. One leads to a constant apology. And what I'm saying is that the gospel actually should lead us to a humbleness that undoes the arrogance and lead us to a boldness that undoes this sense of constant apologizing. To be able to say, hey, look, I don't have all the answers, but what I do know is that Jesus is alive and God has said a lot of things, some of which are hard to understand, but at the end of the day, God's word is what leads us to life, and therefore, it's going to con- contradict us. It's going to confront us. There are going to be things that we're going to read that we're going to feel absolutely offended by. Let me put it this way. If you read the Bible, and you're like, I don't ever get offended by it. Look, let me be honest with you. I don't think you're reading it carefully enough. There should be things that you read in the Bible that should radically, radically contradict you and even offend you if you're reading it rightly. Because if the Bible really represents the story, the message of a God that is not in this world, is not bound by Western culture, then the things that he says at some point will ruffle our feathers. But the question really boils down to will we listen to what he has to say 
and have confidence and trust in him, even though we may be working through some of these doubts, or will we disbelieve, harden our hearts? Finally, destruction. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it says, take up the helmet of salvation. The word salvation basically uh, means rescue or saving. Um, and it's the idea that oftentimes uh, is permeated throughout the Old Testament, and it's the concept of where God comes in and God helps, God assists. Uh, it's a word that's used in a lot of different ways, and we're not going to unpack all of this right now. But the opposite of salvation really is destruction. It's a path to being undone, path to being ruined, a path to ultimate destruction is the way that we would describe it. And all of these things, Jesus actually would say in John chapter 8, verse 44, he says this, you are of your father. He's speaking to the religious leaders that basically try to capitalize the day and try to capitalize the message and were the ones that were constantly trying to condemn everybody else, but they were never really leading people to the heart of God because they were always misleading people away from Jesus. Jesus said to them, he says, you are of your father, the devil. In other words, you represent your real father, which is not Abraham, which is not God. You represent your father, which is the devil. And Jesus goes on and says that your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Some of your translations might substitute the word um, destroyer for the word murder. And it's a good word because in reality, the idea basically conveys taking a human being. The, actually, within that Greek word is the word anthros, get the word you know, human beings from. But the idea is taking human life and destroying it. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to destroy it. And so the reality is that if you look at your life and you see represented within your life elements that have to do with disintegration, whereby you're falling apart, either societally or personally, disbelief, whereby you are hardening your heart, or even destruction, whereby you're coming undone, you're in bondage, you're in slavery, the fact of the matter is that Jesus comes to want to undo that, to help you, to rescue you, to save you to bring salvation, as king to come into your life, to reorder your life so that it functions and thrives and lives rather than is destroyed. This is what Jesus has come to do. And the way that we respond to that will either lead us to a path of life and thriving or a path of death. But the question I would have for you is, do you understand? I mean, for example, if you are a Christian here, do you see these areas of disintegration and brokenness and disbelief and destruction at work in your life, in any part of your life. Because the fact of the matter is, even as a Christian, we can oftentimes fall prey to some of these things. It's one of the reasons why Paul says, look, pick up the armor of God so that you don't go down the path of destruction, so that you don't bring ruin upon your life and ruin upon the lives of other people, so that you're not coming undone in the form of disorientation, but that your life is made whole. As a Christian, do you see those areas in your life? Do you know where they're at? Can you identify them? What God wants to do is to bring healing into those areas that are being brought to a place of being undone. And the question then is, as we finish, how does Jesus do that? Remember I said earlier that when Jesus healed people, he would always give them his wholeness. So in other words, Jesus, if you think of it this way, the the story of the Bible is that Jesus comes in this world. He's fully God and fully man, all right? And as fully God, fully man, that means that he's completely operating upon the power of God. That Jesus has forgiveness to offer. Jesus has healing to give. Jesus is the whole God. Whole, meaning peaceful God. He's the king of peace. He has peace, therefore, to give. 
that this king comes in this world with peace to give, and the way that he does that in exchange or working with people is he takes from them their disease in the form of withered arms or blind eyes or leprosy, and in exchange gives them wholeness. He takes people that are demoniac, you know, tormented by demons, tormented by anxieties, by fears, and gives them his wholeness in exchange, takes upon himself. But the question is, again, every single time Jesus walks away from these events, leprous free, or, you know, leper free. He's not a leper. His arm's not withered. He's not coming undone. But the reality is that there is an exchange, and there was an exchange by which Jesus said, very clearly, the reason why I can make your life whole, the reason why I can bring my peace, my shalom into your life is because I will exchange all your disease, all your brokenness, all your ruin in exchange for my wholeness. And the question was, was when and how did Jesus do that? What I want to do is I want to finish. And I want to finish not just so much by talking, but by showing And what Jesus did is when he was with his disciples the night before he would die, he sat down with them, and I have some props up here. He took something similar to this, bread. And with his disciples, he enters into what was typically called the Passover meal. And the Passover meal linked the people of Israel to a story when they came out of the wilderness or when they came out of Egypt under the leadership or the authority of the oppression of Pharaoh. The story was that God was going to rescue them. Salvation was going to happen. God was going to save them, if you would, from the oppression of Pharaoh, from the brickyards of Pharaoh, from the slavery, from the oppression that was all associated with Egypt. And what Jesus does with his disciples is he takes the bread and he says, here's what's going to happen. What I'm about to do, nobody's going to quite understand until at some point later. What Jesus does is he takes the bread and he says, I will bring healing. I will bring shalom. I will bring my peace. And the way that I will bring my healing, my shalom, my peace, is that I will be broken. In other words, the one who is whole, in order to make others whole, will need to be broken. So Jesus takes the bread in front of his disciples and he says, here's what's going to happen. Look at the bread. He takes it, this whole piece of bread, and he breaks it. And he says, In order for you to eat, this bread must be broken. In other words, on the cross, what we see with Jesus is he himself, the way Isaiah describes it, he bears our shame, he bears our sorrow, he bears our griefs upon himself. He's crushed, he's broken, he's ruined, so that you and I, who are crushed, broken, disintegrated, and ruined, can actually be made whole. The reason why you and I are invited to trust God is simply because he is a trustworthy God. We can trust him. A God that makes himself vulnerable to us is a God that we in turn can make ourselves vulnerable to him. In other words, the very baggage that you and I carry in our lives, most of which we are ashamed of, some of our closest friends don't even know, we don't want to tell them, we're afraid as to how they're going to respond to us. All of those things, Jesus says, I already know about them. I'm already aware of them, and I already know the type of brokenness and disintegration and ruin and destruction they've already brought into into your life. And what Jesus comes to us and says, what I want you to do is I want you to entrust those to me. 
pain that is associated with them, the brokenness that comes from them, the defilement that you feel because of it. Lay them at my feet. And because I was broken, I will make you whole. This is the story of the gospel. This is why it's good news that this very king that comes into our lives to undo our brokenness has come to take away our shame and our destruction and in exchange give us wholeness. At the same time, we have an enemy that's constantly trying to undermine and undo everything good that God is doing. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to see the good work that God has done. I want to invite you to come to that table, to partake of that bread that welcomes you, not to leave you in a state of where you're at, but to change you, to heal you, to transform you, to make you into a person that's like God, that loves like God, that transforms others by way of the relationship that you have with them, by way of being forgiving, by being caring, as opposed to being stingy or arrogant or prideful, that this is what the gospel does. It changes us. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, and you found yourself maybe constantly broken down by the attacks of the devil, I want to invite you to see, in light of what God has done, the various ways in which the devil tries to undo every good thing. And for you to go back to the cross to remind yourself of the great love that God has put on display for you and to turn your hearts back to him, to respond, to recognize what are the areas in your life right now that there are various forms of brokenness in which the devil is trying to bring his ruin upon your life, to confess those things to God. So why don't we all stand? We're going to finish, close with a song. We have communion in the back, and I want to invite you, if you'd like, to partake of communion. If you're here, you're a Christian, to partake of that meal to remind yourself of the great love that God has put on display for you. If you're here, if you're not a Christian, to confess your sin to God, to turn to Him. And no matter what types of circumstances you may be finding yourself going through in this life, I want to invite some of the people to come on up. Uh, Maybe that's you, if that's you, to be prayed for. We're going to have some people off over to the side of the cross to be there to pray for you, to help you, to do whatever they can, to just come alongside you, to carry you. It's what the Bible describes, that we carry one another's burdens. So what are the burdens that you carry that are crushing you, that are like weights on your shoulders, destroying you, disintegrating you, to lay those down at Jesus' feet and to allow him to carry you? So let me pray and let's sing. Let's respond. God, thank you for great grace that you put on display for us through Jesus. God, help us to respond in love and confession of sin and of trust in you.